Okay, we've been going through the Old Testament. We're up to 2 Samuel chapter 12. We've been going through a difficult time in David's life. These are rough passages to go through, but some very, very powerful lessons here as we get into the study again. The last time we saw that King David really messed up. He committed adultery with Bathsheba, and she then became pregnant with David's baby. David had her husband Uriah killed so he could take Bathsheba and make her his wife. You know, it sounds like a soap opera, and it's just amazing the way things happen there. He tried to use the sin of murder in order to try to cover up the sin of adultery. And that just shows you how messed up we can be and blinded by sin when we allow it in our life like that. So also last time we saw this principle that one sin leads to another sin. If we fail to confess our sin to God and to turn from that sin, then one sin will lead to another sin, and it can even lead to a string of sins. So confession for a believer who has sinned is so important. Now we also learned last time that you might be able to fool some people, which is what David was trying to do, but you can't fool God. He sees everything and he knows our thoughts before we ever have them. So he's way ahead of the ball game. Okay, We're going to start today by reading the last statement at the end of chapter 11. Well, these are heavy passages to get into, isn't it? It's like, good morning, let's look at David's adultery and murder. You know, I mean, wow, what a way to start your Sunday morning. Huh? The last statement in 2 Samuel chapter 11 It says, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Then right into chapter 12, verse 1, then the Lord sent Nathan to David. And Nathan is a prophet here. So we see very quickly here that God can send people our way to help us deal with our sin. David was trying to cover his sin without dealing with it. You know, he's a picture of us for a believer, a child of God, who refuses to deal with his sin the right way. When we do that, we're living apart from the Lord. And the Lord, you know, he loves us too much to let us live out of fellowship with him. I want you to look at Hebrews chapter 12, a good reminder for us about how much the Lord loves us. And uh, this, is, this is truly tough love. And we see the Lord having to deal with us when we're in a pickle that we've created for ourselves, like David here. In Hebrews 12, in verse 5, it says, You have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. So we're talking about God speaking to his children. It says, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord. That's the discipline of the Lord when he comes after you nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. Because David's about to be rebuked in our passage there. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens. So we get from this, the Lord only disciplines, he only chastens those that he loves. So when God has to come after us, it's a good thing. I mean, we need to accept that as, Lord, I know you're loving me right now. Okay? And it goes on to say, for whom the Lord loves, he chastens and he scourges every son whom he receives. So every son that is a child of God is going to be chastened by the Lord. We're going to be disciplined by our Father. Verse 7 goes on, if you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten, doesn't discipline? 
But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, how many? All, all of God's children have become partakers of his discipline. If you don't have that discipline, then it says you are illegitimate and not sons. So the Lord's very clear that if he's disciplining you, it's because you're his child and he loves you, okay? And the Lord doesn't want us to remain in a place of failure, where we're in a damaged relationship with him because of some sin in our life and we're just refusing to deal with it. So the Lord is stepping into David's life and he's going to help him in this passage, even though it looks pretty rough as we get into this. You see, when we refuse to confess our sin, the picture is we're running from God, not towards him. It's like us avoiding someone that we're at odds with and we really don't want to see him. The Lord doesn't want us to live like that. He always wants us to have an open fellowship with him. And you know, in David's case, the Lord gave him over nine months to confess and repent on his own. But David did not confess during that time. Now, from David's perspective, he probably thought that he got away with his sins and that God was apparently okay with him because he hasn't been knocking on his door, right? But when the Lord doesn't rebuke us right away after we have sinned, don't think that he's okay with it. He's simply giving us time to confess on our own. If we don't confess on our own, then the Lord will step in and deal with us. I like what somebody said. The Lord will deal with us privately at first, but if we don't respond to that, then the Lord knows what we need to be broken and repent. You know, David wasn't broken on his own after nine months. We know the child was born, so it's been a nine-month period. So here the Lord is going to step in. He sends Nathan the prophet to David. And the Lord was going to have Nathan use a parable to get through to David. We'll see that in a minute here. You know, Jesus used parables too, as you remember following him through the New Testament. The purpose of a parable is to tell a story where you get to make the call. You know, the story makes you kind of a spectator, so you can make an objective call, an objective judgment, but then after you make your judgment, you're told that the story was actually about you. Uh, By using this method, the Lord can open our eyes to something that we've been blind to in our own life. You know, and it's ultimately the purpose of the parable for us to pass judgment on ourselves. (laughs) It's a real eye-opener. So we get back into verse 1. It says, the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him, and he said to him, there were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. So in this story, David is the rich man, and Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, is the poor man. And remember, David doesn't see this yet. He thinks, you know, this is just a story, as far as he knows, that Nathan is telling him, and he's going to ask David to make a judgment on it, which would not be unusual for a king to hear somebody's case and then have to make a judgment on that situation. So all he knows is there's two men in a city, one rich and one poor. Verse 2 says, The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds. And that's a picture of David's many wives. Verse 3, But the poor man, he had nothing except one little ewe lamb which he had bought and nourished and it grew up together with him and with his children 
It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup, and it lay in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. So the Lord describes here how precious Bathsheba was to Uriah, her husband. It says that this, this poor man had nothing. You know, that's probably how Uriah saw himself, as a guy who really didn't have anything going, you know. Then it says the only thing he did have was this precious little lamb and how he was able to buy it and then he nourished it. And from this description, you know, it sounds like Uriah was so thrilled to be able to be married to Bathsheba that he took very special care of her. He treasured her and he loved her. And the rest of verse 3 describes how close and how special she was to him that his whole life was wrapped around her. You know, did you catch that in verse 3? It says, it grew up together with him and with his children. It's part of the family. It's so close. It ate of his own food, shared his food with it, drank from his own cup, and lay in his bosom. It's not like you couldn't give any more love here. And it was like a daughter to him. He watched over this relationship with the tender care of a father as well as a husband. So the Lord expresses an amazing love here. Then he goes on to verse 4. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So this guy had a visitor, and instead of taking one of the many sheep that he had out of his flock or any animal out of his flock, he refused to do that. He says to even take one, you know. So David could have gone with any one of his wives. He had a selection that he had made for himself. But instead of doing that, he decides to take this one precious one that belongs to someone else. Verse 4, at the end there, you know, he says... He took the poor man's lamb. He prepared it for the man who had come to him. Now, we see the punchline is coming here. David's going to hear this story. And remember, when this happens, David used to be a shepherd, right? So I think this this story of stealing a poor man's only sheep must have struck a whole bunch of nerves in David because It says in verse 5, David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. (laughs) Look how angry David got. Said he was greatly aroused. You know, David saw this as such an evil thing to do. That he says this man should die. So here he is declaring a death penalty for this guy for stealing a sheep, all right? And David's judgment here actually goes against the law of Moses. You know, there were penalties for stealing in the law, but the punishment wasn't death. (laughs) That wasn't what was supposed to happen. So David, you could see the anger, how high it is in him. And you know, when we look at how angry David got here, we can see how horrible our sin looks on other people, and yet we can overlook it in our own life. Isn't that amazing? So that's why the Lord comes to deal with us when we don't want to deal with ourselves. So verse 6, David said this, He shall restore fourfold for the lamb. So he's going to have to give back four to this poor man since he did this. Because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Now this part, it was in the law that you would restore four 
for the one that you had stolen if you're caught. So that party did agree with the law, but the other party was going overboard on that. And the Lord did that intentionally, using that picture of the lamb, knowing his shepherd heart was going to pop out on that one and want to react. You notice something too here. David said this rich man had no pity on the poor man. Good judgment by David. The guy didn't have any pity, thinking, this is his only lamb. I'm really going to do that to this guy. I'm going to take the only one he's got. So he shows no pity. And wow, David himself showed no pity for Uriah or for Bathsheba, for that matter, you know. He didn't take time to consider how Bathsheba was Uriah's only treasure in life. And David didn't care that he was originally, if you remember, he was going to let Bathsheba, you know, have to take care of this child without letting it know who his true father was and having to lie to her husband for the rest of her life. You know, how cold is that? So isn't it amazing how our sin can make us so uncaring toward others and how badly it's going to affect their lives? It's like we really don't even think that through. You know, you see this, and if the depth of this hits you like it hits us, it should. You know, we, we say, Lord, help us to remember these things every time we're tempted to sin, that there are other people, there are other lives, there are other folks who are going to be affected by us turning away from you, even for a moment here. So go on to verse 7. Then Nathan said to David, now after David's rage, and he makes this really straightforward judgment, even going overboard, Nathan says to David, you are the man. You know, these are the most powerful words. Can you picture this scene? David's just ready to kill somebody. And Nathan looks at him and he says, you are the man. Now, they must have crushed David when he heard these words. When you judge a wrong in a story like this, and then what's raised in front of you wasn't what you were expecting at all, it was a mirror. <laughs> Nathan says, look, I'll show you a picture of the guy, and it's you. Wow. And then realize that you were the evil guy in the story, and then you realize even further that the evil you did was way worse than the guy in the story. Wow. And you know, you can, you can praise the Lord that he has Nathan's. These guys that are willing to step up and speak to the most powerful person in the nation, the king, if that's who the Lord sends them to. And not to shy away from that calling, even if it can threaten their life. You know, and he could have. David's the king. He could say, you're done, buddy. Take him out, take his head off, and it'd have been gone in 10 minutes. He'd have been over. Nathans are real hard to deal with when they first show you the mirror. But later on, you praise the Lord for them and how they were used in your life to bring you back to the Lord. So thank the Lord if you use Nathan's in your life. And you know, after Nathan says those powerful words at the beginning of verse 7, then he goes on to reveal the heart of God toward David at this point. And we can learn from this as well. Look at verse 7 again as it goes on. You know, he said to David, you are the man. And thus says the Lord God of Israel. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. So the Lord says that he is the one who put David in such an honored position in the first place, and he anointed him to do that job. 
And he says that he even protected David's life, you know, from the most powerful man in the nation, King Saul, when he was trying to hunt David down and kill him. So the Lord delivered him from that death threat that David was under. And he goes on in verse 8, I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. You know, so the Lord says that he's the one who put David in that position. He anointed him to do that job. And he says, you know, that he even protected David's life when he was in trouble. And can you imagine what he's telling him here in verse 8 when he said, I gave you this, I gave you this, and if that wasn't enough. (laughs) The Lord says that after all he gave to David, including the house of Israel and the house of Judah, meaning the entire nation put under David's control in his reign, that if that wasn't enough for David, then he would give him more, and not just a little more, but much more. It makes you wonder how much we miss out on when we take matters into our own hands and think we have to sin in order to get what we want. You know, do you think the Lord will say to us one day when we stand before him, I would have given you much more and all you had to do was ask and trust me. Wow. You can chew on that thought for quite a while, can't you? And did you notice the Lord said to David, notice this pattern, he said he anointed him and then he delivered him and then he gave to David. You know, that's the same thing the Lord can say to you and me. He anointed us with his spirit. He delivered us from our sins and he has given us blessing after blessing. So the Lord can tell us the very same thing. And look at the beginning of verse 9. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? Notice how clearly the Lord points out that horrible impact of David's sin. To despise means to look down upon. So that meant that by David's actions, he was looking down on God's commands not to commit adultery and not to commit murder as though they weren't important. My agenda is more important than what God says here. That's despising, that's looking down on. So when we do that, we're saying in effect, I know better than God. I know what he said, but I'm gonna do this. So we're saying, I know better than you, Lord. You know, we would never say that out loud, but that's what our actions are saying when we go against God's commands. Ouch, that hurts and it should. You know, we should be hurt by the conviction of our sin and hopefully that'll help us turn away from sin the next time we're tempted instead of diving headfirst into it. Go on in verse nine. He says, why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with a sword. David wasn't there, but God's saying you're responsible for this. You have taken his wife to be your wife. And you have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. So God points his finger right at David and he clearly calls out David's sin. You know, he declares that David is responsible for his sin. And this is such an important principle. 
that we're identified as sinners and our sin is pointed out specifically. And when we accept the, the responsibility for our sin, then we can deal with it and get past it. And that's what David needed. He needed to have that put right smack dab in front of him and the Lord saying, here it is, David, you have to deal with this now. You know, it's such a tragedy in our society that we're told not to accept the blame for our own sin. They want us to blame the culture, you know, or the upbringing, or our parents, or anybody, even the police, but not yourselves. Don't blame yourself for what happened. It's no wonder that people get stuck in the rut of their own sin. You know, they're not being taught how to deal with it and how to get free from it. Verse 10 goes on. Now, therefore, this is the words of the Lord coming straight through Nathan to David. The sword shall never depart from your house. And here's the reason. Because you have despised me. And you have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. So the Lord shows David the consequences of his sins. And the consequences are painful, but consequences are helpful too. They help us to avoid sin the next time because we don't want to have to face the pain of the consequences. You know, that's why spanking children is so important. <laughs> the lesson from spanking is that sin brings on painful consequences. It's a very simple principle. And the spanking that is done in love is the best way to teach young children, you know, who are not old enough yet to reason with, that sin brings pain. And those painful teaching lessons can help steer a child in the right direction and help them avoid even more serious consequences down the road. Proverbs 23, 13 says this, Do not withhold correction from a child, for if you beat him with a rod, he shall not die. You shall beat him with a rod and deliver his soul from hell. Wow, the Lord says it really straight. And Proverbs 13, 24 goes on and says, He who spares his rod hates his son. But he who loves him disciplines him promptly, meaning as needed. <laughs> so if we listen to our modern society, when you think about it, it's actually telling us not to love our children and not to help protect them from bad consequences later on in life. Let me ask you, do you see young people who are going to a very dangerous situations and getting in, in horrible situations, they've not been taught different? They run headfirst into some of the worst things they could possibly get into and may even lose their life. Boy, when we get away from God's word, we just go off the deep end of foolish, right? The Lord promised David violence in his family as a consequence for his sin. And look what it's going to cost David. We'll see this down the road, but he's going to lose three sons later on by the sword. And even now... He's going to lose this baby son that was born to Bathsheba. So it's interesting to me, it's kind of the principle of restoration with, the file, with that, you know, giving back four for the one you took. David's going to lose four lives in his family, four of his sons, for the life that he took of killing Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. Wow. Very painful consequences. Verse 11, thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house. And I will take your wives from before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives 
in the sight of this sun, meaning wide out in the open, for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the sun. So another painful consequence for David, public shame for the sin that he tried to keep secret. Wow, verse 13. So David said to Nathan, after he hears all this straight from the Lord, and he knows this is God speaking, David says, I have sinned against the Lord. So David acknowledges that he is guilty. And isn't it interesting? He doesn't blame anyone else. He doesn't blame his circumstances. He humbles himself and he confesses his sin. And we're not told it right here, but David actually repented here because he never does this again. He never steals another man's wife and he never has another husband killed for that reason. So David stands apart from King Saul in this one. Saul never turned away from, the, from sin in his life, but David did. And look what the Lord was doing in David's life for the nine months before he sent Nathan to speak to David. Take a look at Psalm 32 for a minute. This is something that David wrote. And it was during this, it's about the time when he was uh, running from the Lord for those nine months or however long that was, probably maybe closer to a year. But Psalm 32, down at verse 3, he says, When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. So he's saying, during that time, man, the conviction was heavy. I had just this emptiness in my life. I was drained, you know, like the middle of summer when you're, you're really thirsty, you've used all your energy and there's nothing left. He said, that's what I was feeling like during that time. But he wouldn't repent. He wouldn't turn to the Lord then. Uh, look at verse 9 in the same passage of Psalm 32. It says, do not be like the horse or like the mule which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. And David is saying, I was like that dumb animal. I didn't come to the Lord on my own. The Lord had to send Nathan. He had to put the bridle on me. He had to drag me before the Lord. So David's encouragement is, don't make God have to do that. Man, it makes, makes us look so bad. And it tells us, too, the Lord can use stronger methods if he needs to to break us. <laughs> don't think that he can't. He knows what it takes. So back to 2 Samuel 12, and back to verse 13, as after David said, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin, and you shall not die. David deserved the death penalty, according to the law of Moses, for adultery and for murder. But David confessed, and God gave him mercy, you know, however, the consequences are going to remain. Someone said that the consequences of our sin are like a nail driven in a board. You can remove the nail, but the nail hole remains. And that board is never the same. It's always going to have the hole in it. You know, we lose something when we sin. David has, has lost a great deal of his good reputation. He was still used by the Lord, but he suffered loss. Even today, when people read through the Bible and they come across this, thing that David did, they're shocked, like, wow, David, what happened? You're the man of God. What happened? 
So we, we lose, we suffer such loss when we give in to sin. Verse 14 says, however, Nathan's still relating this to David, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. He said, because of that, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. So the Lord announced two things to David because of his sin. One, his sin caused people to blaspheme God. And you know, that probably hurt David the most because he loved the Lord and he never wanted to hurt him. And we're the same way. When you realize our sin has caused God pain, that hurts to think that, you know, and the Lord lets him know. And secondly, he let him know his child was going to die. What a painful loss, and all because of sin. Verse 15, then Nathan departed to his house, and the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and it became ill. David therefore pleaded with God for the child, and David fasted, and he went in, and he lay all night on the ground. So David pleaded, and he fasted, and he laid on the ground all night, and it's amazing how important people come to us, become to us when we're about to lose them. You know, if we could just wake up to how valuable they are before it gets to that point. Look how David has changed, though. He went from pushing this child away when he thought he was going to get caught in his sin with Bathsheba to pleading for this child's life. That's a huge change we see in David. Verse 17, so the elders of his house arose, so David's leaders come now, and they went to him to raise him up from the ground. They want to encourage him. They hate to see him this way. But he would not, nor did he eat food with them. Then on the seventh day it came to pass that the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, indeed, while the child was alive, we spoke to him, and he would not heed our voice. How can we tell him that the child is dead? He may do some harm. When David saw that his servants were whispering, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore, David said to his servants, is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. So David arose from the ground, washed and anointed himself, changed his clothes, and he went into the house of the Lord and he worshiped. Then he went into his own house and when he requested, they set food before him and he ate. Did you see what David did after the child was gone? The first thing he did was worship the Lord. This shows that he submitted to the Lord's will. You know, if we ask the Lord for something and he clearly says no, then we know God's will for that particular request was no. So then we should honor the Lord, you know, with our submission to his will. And you think about it, that's what we want to hear from our kids, right, when we tell them no. I mean, don't we want to hear him say, okay, Dad, if you say so, <laughs> instead of what, why? You know, and all that. Verse 21, then his servants said to him, what is this that you have done? I mean, they don't get it. You have fasted and wept for the child while he was still alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. And he said, while the child was alive, I fasted and wept. That's true. For I said, who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. 
So David's servants, they didn't understand. So he explained it to them that he can't change death. That's out of his control. He'd been asking for a reprieve, and God's answer was no. So David accepted God's will. He was obviously still hurting over the loss, but he was saying amen to what God had said no to. You know what David says in verse 23 at the end when he says, I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me? It shows us that the truth that there is life after death. David knows I'm going to see him again, just not right away. And this verse also brings great comfort to the parents who have lost a child at a very young age. You know, the Lord acknowledges the value of the faith of a child too. You know, he, he doesn't say he's, you need to have the faith of an adult. He says you need to have the faith of a child. That faith is much stronger than the faith of us doubting adults. You know, the young kids haven't learned to doubt yet, huh? Like we do when we grow. Verse 24 goes on. Then David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and he went into her and he lay with her. So David comforts his wife, he moves on. When we mess up and then we confess, we need to accept God's forgiveness and move on. You know, don't let the enemy keep you down because of your past sins. If God has forgiven you, then accept his forgiveness. The Bible says there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And that word no means no. (laughs) There isn't any. Verse 24 goes on. It says, now the Lord, it says, uh, David had comforted his wife. She bore a son. She called his name Solomon. And now the Lord loved him. And he sent word by the hand of Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. So the name Solomon, it means peace. And I think David had that name because he now had peace with the Lord after he had got right with the Lord. And Jedidiah, it means love by the Lord. And if you think about it, if you're a believer, then you are a Solomon because you have the peace with God. And you are a Jedidiah because you are definitely loved by the Lord. Isn't that amazing? And this here is so amazing too because God shows such grace. After all this sin that they committed, you know, everything that happened, God is showing grace. And that's the kind of grace we've all experienced because we've all sinned numerous times after we've been saved. Look at Romans 5 for a minute. This is such a powerful passage and man, We need to just really thank the Lord for sharing these words with us here. If you look at Romans chapter 5, and you look down to verse 15, it says, But the free gift is not like the offense, for if by the one man's offense many died, much more, notice that, much more, the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. So don't miss that. Much more, and it abounded. In verse 17, for if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace, abundance of the grace, and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. And then you look at uh, chapter 5, verse 20 down there. It says, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, we're talking about a lot of sin, look what it says. Grace 
abounded much more. You know, it's interesting too, that word abounded much more, it means super abounded. So God has tremendous grace for us, even after we mess up so badly. You know, somebody said, God has enough grace to cover all of our failures. And man, that's a passage to look to see that. Something interesting you find here, too, in our, our story is that Bathsheba is never blamed or condemned in any of this. You know, regardless of what you read in some commentaries or you hear some people say, you've not seen one word against her in this whole passage. And as a matter of fact, God's grace extended to her, especially by allowing the Messiah to come through her son, Solomon. Amazing grace. Back in our passage of 2 Samuel 13, in verse 26, it says, Now, Joab fought against Rabbah of the people of Ammon. Remember, they've been fighting these Ammonites for a little bit here. And he took the royal city. So he's at the point of conquest here where it's going to be a victory in a minute. And Joab sent messengers to David. And he said, I have fought against Rabbah, and I have taken the city's water supply. So they don't have many days when you grab the water supply from them. Now, therefore, gather the rest of the people together, this is what he's telling the messenger to tell David, and encamp against the city, and you take it, lest I take the city and it be called after my name. So Joab wasn't interested in the glory or any titles. He was just content to serve. And then in verse 29, so David gathered all the people together, and he went to Rabbah. He fought against it, and he took it. Then he took their king's crown from his head, its weight was a talent of gold with precious stones, and it was set on David's head. He probably had to have somebody holding it there for just a moment, maybe he'd get a snapshot or a picture or two, because that's telling us that crown weighed 75 pounds. Wow. <laughs> you wouldn't walk around with that one. And it was set on David's head. Also, he brought out the spoil of the city, and notice how much it was, in great abundance. So Lord tells us, he, he came in and he gets this crown that weighs 75 pounds, and there was also great spoil that came too. Now you wonder, why is this story right here? You know, it seems like a drastic change of direction from the rest of the chapter. But through all of this, the Lord was showing that he's not through with David and that he could still use him. David needed to get back in action and to do what he was called to do. And David did just that. Verse 31 goes on. He brought out the people who were in it. This is David bringing them out. He put them to work with saws and iron picks and iron axes, and he made them cross over to the brickworks. So he did to all the cities of the people of Ammon. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. So the Ammonites were slaves now. David conquered them all, every one of them, and now they're slaves. They're laborers, you know, on our Labor Day weekend. <laughs> they were made slaves here for David's, uh, David's reign. And these were the folks who had insulted David's ambassadors that he sent to Ammon a few chapters ago, if you remember that story. Now, here's some lessons we learned from this passage. This is an amazing, amazing passage. First of all, don't try to cover up your sin, but confess it and walk in the light. You know, the Lord tells us about that. We need to walk in the light. Secondly, David received and he accepted God's forgiveness. He didn't beat himself up the rest of his life. Instead, 
He returned this forgiveness. He took the forgiveness from God and he turned it into constant praise for the rest of his life. And man, we should understand that. You know, Lord, you forgave me when I deserved the lake of fire. We should be celebrating that forgiveness every day, right? And then thirdly, there are Christians who have failed in a huge way. And I know you've seen the stories in the limelight as well as I have. Some have fallen for the temptation to run and hide after they have fallen. They've They've taken off. But others have, you know, they've faced their sin, they've confessed it, and they've gone forward. And they celebrate God's forgiveness, even though it was difficult for them to humble themselves and face up to their sin. David took responsibility for his sin, he confessed it, and then he got back into God's will. And that's what the Lord wants for us. And here's almost a side note, but you know, if you haven't forgiven David in the Bible when you read this story and you think, man, what a jerk, how could he do that? If you haven't forgiven him, you need to because God forgave him. If you haven't forgiven others who have confessed to you, you need to. 70 times seven, right? And if you haven't forgiven yourself, you need to because God does. You need to receive and accept his forgiveness. And you know that if you're in Christ today, then Romans 8.1 speaks to you. That's the no condemnation passage. It's talking about you. And I don't care what sin you've committed. In closing, I want us to look at Psalm 51 for a minute. Because this is another psalm that David wrote about this incident in his life and what it, what it meant to him, what it did for him. And man, there's some good words. If you're going to read some good passages, read that psalm. 32 and Psalm 51 together. In Psalm 51, if you look down to verse 12, David says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. He said, I lost it. I didn't lose my salvation, but I sure lost the joy of it. He said, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit because I can't hold myself up now. I need you to do that. He says, now look, when, when you do that, he says, then I will teach transgressors your ways and a sinner shall be converted to you. So he's saying, you restore me, Lord, and I'm back in service to you. He says in verse 14, deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation. So like, I got nowhere else to turn. And my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall show forth your praise. So he's saying, you get me back, Lord. You, you lift me up again. Once my sins have been forgiven, I'm going to be praising you and I'm going to be telling other people about it. And that's what the Lord wants in our life. Then look at verse 16 in that passage. For you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. So David is saying, let the Lord break you. If you get to that point where you've got sin in your life and you have refused to deal with it, humble yourself before the Lord and allow him to break you. Because he loves you enough, he's going to continue to go after you. You know, it's better to stop right now and say, Lord, if you need to break me right now, please do that. I want forgiveness in my life. I want to receive that forgiveness. I want to walk in celebration of your grace from this point on. Let's pray. Father, you are our life. We can't move without you, Lord. 
And Jesus, you told us without you, we can't do anything. So Lord, right now, if someone is here, if, if we've put ourselves in that place of trying to hide our sin, hide from you, I pray today, Lord, that you would bring that Nathan from your passage here, Lord, that you would put the mirror in front of us and show us we have a need to deal with our sin. We have a need to confess. We have a need to repent and to get back in your will. So, Father, for anybody here, I pray you would help them with that. If anyone is listening to us, Lord, anyone that comes to mind, Lord, that's in that situation, we pray for them, Lord. Please open their eyes. Help them to come back to you to get free, to receive your full forgiveness and to walk in your grace and rejoice in that grace every day. Thank you for the long suffering you have with us. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for your tremendous love. And Lord, we return all praise, honor, and glory back to you in the precious name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.